and some good stuff coming up. So thanks. <laughs> So we'll have a clinical research unit. Today's uh, talk is, um, I'm excited to, to welcome my colleague um, from the Department of Psychiatry and, and Psychology, Jonathan Lichtenstein, who is uh, the Director of Pediatric Neuropsychological Services here at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth, and Assistant Professor at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. Jonathan um, is a Connecticut native who uh, completed his undergraduate studies at Hampshire College in Amherst, Mass., and then his doctorate as well as master's in business administration and his uh, neuropsychology doctorate at Widener University in Pennsylvania with a dissertation on questionably valid baseline scores on impact, which is a concussion battery, some of you might know, rates and factors of influence in a Division III athletic population. He therefore has had long interest and expertise in uh, uh, youth and young adult uh, concussion and return to sports. He has five uh, grants that he is PI or co-PI on, four of which are related to uh, youth and sports concussion, and one of which is uh, uh, in the RESTORE trial with critical care and sedation and cognitive outcomes. So without further ado, Jonathan, um, a friend from Geisel and Dartmouth, welcome to the podium. Is this on? Can people hear me on this one? Yes. All right. Thanks, Keith. It's, uh, I'm really so excited that I was asked to speak here because I go to a lot of grand rounds in this hospital. This is the best one. Um, <laughs> Yeah, okay, warm you up a little bit. Um, but I, I, no, I really, I mean it. I feel like I take so much away from these grand rounds. I love attending them, so I'm thrilled that I get to be part of it. I hope I don't blow it. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, my goal here, you know, I had to list my learning objectives that you guys all got in an email. Um, the real goal that I have, though, is that this is not like every other concussion talk that you've been to, because my guess is that you go to a lot of them these days, because it's sort of hard to escape. Um, they're everywhere. Everybody seems to be talking about this issue. And so I hope that there's something original that you take away from this, something new, a little bit different. Um, and the title about the return to school piece, I think, becomes really key for people involved in pediatric management of any kind, um, because this is the key issue. What do you do? in the acute stage. What's the right thing to do? And school is a hot button piece. It's where they live, it's where they work, it's where they need to go, but what about the dangers around it? How do we transition people back? So um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about what's been looked at in terms of acute management and, and research, but then I'm also gonna spend most of the time talking about a new uh, school program that we've been embarking on here in New Hampshire, which we have a grant to do, uh, to look at, which is really about how do we build the best sort of return to school program and the best sort of wraparound care for the concussed student in the school setting. Um, and hopefully I'll leave enough time for questions, but I always go along, so I'm gonna do my best to try to uh, rein it in for us today. I do have some disclosures I have to make. Uh, my funding is through uh, a subcontract through the Brain Injury Association of New Hampshire, and we had a grant from HRSA to do this uh, school project that I'm gonna talk about. I'm also a medical advisor to a local startup called the Brain Trust, which looks into educational solutions in concussion management, um, but they have no product. I'm not going to be talking about them today, and I've received no financial compensation from them, but I just have to disclose that I am an advisor. And then um, 
Also, the main disclosure here is that we're still figuring out concussions. The definition is a hard thing to pin down. It's sort of a mysterious injury. Um, obviously, as everyone talks about, it's sort of an unseen injury a lot of the time. And thus, it becomes harder and harder to determine what is and isn't, because we're basing it on symptoms, rep symptom report oftentimes. Um, so that's a disclosure, too. I don't know everything about it. Keith said lots of nice things about my, my experience in this area, but we're still figuring it out as a field. I do need to give some acknowledgments for the work that I'm going to present. Oftentimes, people, I think, do this at the end of the talk as an acknowledgment, but I just want to put it right out front. I couldn't have done this without help from these people. And it's very important that I, that I say something about them. Amy Schmidt, who's a postdoc with me right now, she did a lot of work on this new project that I'll talk about at the end. Um, tireless effort, so I, I have to give her uh, props for that. Uh, some other folks that worked with me on this, Art Marylander, helped originally develop this project, and then we continued to work on it together. Um, Kelsey was a, an undergrad who worked with us. And we have a whole team for this program. It's called Concussion Chalk Talk, and it's a big team. Uh, Laura Flashman from the hospital is part of it. Jennifer Parent-Nichols, who's a PT at Franklin Pierce College, is part of it. Lynn Fleming, who's an occupational therapist in Concord, is part of it. We tried to make this as um, build a team that could provide expertise from different areas so that we really didn't miss things if we could. So just an acknowledgments, just to get it out, out front. Okay, so concussion, it's, everyone talks about it, but is it so new? And the answer is no. If we look through history, we can start back with Hippocrates, right, who's a pretty important guy as far as medicine goes. And he's sort of the first one who kind of identified brain injuries. And there's some translations that say that he was talking about concussion. I think that might be a, a modern sort of take on it that may not be quite right. But he certainly was the first one to identify brain injuries as, as a medical issue. And then I might not say it right, but Razes, he's a Persian physician in the 9th and 10th centuries. He's the first one who made a differentiation between uh, a mild brain injury and a severe brain injury, one in which there might be symptoms that resolve sort of quickly, and then the one where they might not. And that was a, the initial first sort of designation of there being a difference, there being a mild brain injury, which is important because that's what concussion ends up becoming. And then um, Lanfranco and uh, folks in the medieval period moving into the Renaissance, they were the first ones to sort of start talking about the mechanism, about how concussion mechanism might be different from um, other brain injury. They were talking about the commotio cerebri, the, the, the shaking rather than the contusio cerebri, rather than the, that focal injury of impact. Um, and even though the Renaissance was great and Enlightenment was terrific, nothing really, nothing really happened to concussion for a long time during that period. Right? <laughs> Lots of other good contributions to the way we think and understand the world, but not so much in brain injury. Um, and then we skip ahead to uh, Chris Giza and David Hovda, who in the latter part of the 20th century first started identifying more complex ideas of mechanism, more ideas about biomechanical force and how it has an effect on underlying uh, cellular metabolism. And that might be actually the key to really what's going on. So a big jump from there to there, but as I said, lots of other good stuff going on. But so why is it so big now? Why is everyone so focused on it? I think a lot of it is that we realized that there might actually be some danger here. Right? And there's a lot of alarmists out there. I'm not one of them. When we talk about the ideas of second impact syndrome, I think it's important to understand that it exists. But I back away from that. But that's still, I, re I recognize that as a reason why it's um, such a focus. And even if we get away from the real catastrophic outcomes and we just think about two injuries in a close amount of time, that can lead to a much more complicated recovery. And so the more we understand that our job is to make a prevention between injury one and injury two. We want to make sure that second injury doesn't happen, especially not in a close proximity. Um, this has captured our imagination, our thoughts about 
why we need to really focus on it. Furthermore, I think in the culture, athletics has become so much more specialized. So instead of uh, in the past, we might have played a sport for one season. Now our young students are playing sports all year round, maybe the same sport all year round, getting many, many repetitions. Think about you know, the Malcolm Gladwell concept of outliers, right? It's all about how many reps you get to make you better. And so people, I think, are adopting this concept. And, but that means that they have more potentials for athletic exposures for injury. And so we have to focus more on it because it's more of a prevalent case. And then, then there's all the, the hysteria, right? All the, the freaking out about CTE and what's going to happen in the long run. Um, CTE is not really a proven diagnosis by any means. Um, it's something that certainly cannot be diagnosed in a living individual. Um, only in, it's not. It's, it's only a pathological, um, uh, neuropathological piece post-mortem. And uh, the science behind it is not really very good. Um, we're, we're doing better work, I think, in this area to understand the pathology of whatever this might be, but we're still way off from figuring it out. But the point is that it's, all, it's in the media, right? You can't miss the Christmas movie Concussion with Will Smith. Um, and so everybody's thinking about it, and it gets over-dramatized. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, <coughs> media picks up on a scientific study like the folks at Boston that they do, um, which instead of publishing it in a peer-reviewed article, they might just send out a press release of something they found in someone's brain. So you have to question what the motive is there. Anyway, so that's why I think we're talking a lot about it now. Um, and oh, sorry, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't mean to put you off your uh, egg bake. Um, but uh, so far, I just wanted to give you just a little heads up. So I do concussion management consultation to somewhere on the measure of 25 to 30 schools in the region. And uh, just from our high schools, before school even started, we had 10 concussions in the preseason, at least from the schools that I, that I work with. So there's probably a lot more across the state because I don't work with all the schools. And since school started, I've got 44 that I'm currently working with. Some have resolved, most haven't, they're still ongoing. But this just gives you a sense of sort of how many we're, we're sort of seeing on a regular basis. And this is um, 25 to 30 or so. Um, and uh, this is all athletics, though. I'm not counting here non-athletic injuries. Um, and one thing I just wanted to bring up as a little anecdote, um, one of the schools I consult to, I, one of the ways I do this is I read impact scores that come in. That's the cognitive test that Keith was talking about. And uh, on this one particular student, I saw a very, very low scores in a post-injury test. So their baseline taken before they had had an injury was intact and normal. And then I saw their post-injury test, and the scores were sort of globally declined. This is not a typical thing we see in after an injury. Usually there, are, there might be some declines, but not such global depression that everything's down into a severely impaired range. And there was a lot of symptoms. When I see a profile like that, I get a bit concerned, and I let the trainer know that they should probably be seen by their physician or, or somebody, but soon, because I don't really know what's going on. But it looks maybe serious. And so they, the trainer told the parents. The parents went to the PCP, um, couldn't get in for an appointment, couldn't be seen. So they took him to the ER, which is not uncommon also. Um, and the ER turned him away, basically. They said, we're not going to see you for this. This concussion happened a day and a half ago. I'm not going to do a CT. There's nothing I'm going to do differently than the fact that your trainer already diagnosed the concussion. So no, you know, we're not, not going to see you. This is odd to me. I've never heard anything like that before. Um, granted, it, and the trainer, who has been around a lot longer than me, he said he'd never seen anything like that either. Um, maybe the pendulum has swung 
in a different, in an interesting direction. You know, it sound, you would think that the culture is so, you know, scared by it and really needs to do all this extra work. And even though we know that CTs are not, you know, indicated in, in most in this in this injury, um, you know, the fact that they would turn them away from not even doing an exam or a check is sort of a surprise. But I found this interesting talking to this crew because it means that the place where people are going is definitely pediatricians, definitely pediatric NPs, pediatric, um, uh, you know, uh, PAs, and that's who's going to be seeing these injuries probably first, especially if ERs are going to turn people away. And I think that is where we're going, where you guys are the ones handling the management, and I like that. So again, we have this issue with definition, right? You might find if you start to do a search, you're going to find something like 43. That's the last time I checked. Different definitions of a concussion. And that's sort of troubling, right? If we can't speak the same language, and what's the point of like diagnostics if we don't? The whole idea is that we can go one doctor to another, and we're speaking the same language, right? Diagnostic codes. But if the definition of this syndrome is so different, it's going to be tough. But when I look back at this uh, definition from John Bell, who was a surgeon in 1812, I'm not sure if there is a better definition. Inconceivable derangement of the brain. We don't really know what's going on, um, but we know that something's going on. And it sometimes follows a blow. We, you know, a lot of these definitions include the fact that you need an impact to the head, and we know that's not true, because we know that it's just about the motion and the rotational force that can cause the injury. So sometimes follows a blow. So I don't know if we've gotten, as I said before, I don't know if we've come really that much far, that much further since this. But I love this. Uh, I think it's great. And so uh, I think the simplest definition that we can use is a concussion is a brain injury. That's a simple way to communicate it. Makes sense. Um, we're not getting too technical. If you want to get more jargony, we can say it's a complex pathophysiological process caused by biomechanical forces. Ugh. But try saying that to a group of teachers or parents or other administrative educators. Um, I think. The, the brain injury piece is the simplest way. And then it also lets you know, how are we going to treat this? We have to treat it like a brain injury. Um, mild brain injury, but we still have to treat it like that. And here's a nice uh, GIF that I really like. <laughs> that's like the best one I've seen, though. You know, there's lots of stuff you can find on the internet, but that's just the best. I, I couldn't figure out a way to have played again, but I think it's great. Huh? <laughs> um, so, so underneath that, shaking this, what really might be happening if we want to think about it. Maybe, okay, so maybe at the cellular level, there is a energy crisis, there's a disruption um, in energy production, and, and, and that alters the transmission. So this is from Giesenhoved's work that I was mentioning before. Maybe it's the damage to axons. And we're not talking about the serious TBI here where the axons are completely breaking and then we need to do something to help reestablish the connections. What we're talking about shearing or we're talking about twisting of the axons, which is damage to, um, of course, the white matter. And Doug Smith at UPenn is doing great work in, in, with swine to replicate this. And we're going to learn a lot more, I think, from that work about maybe some biomarkers related to axonal injury, which is going to be helpful. Um, and then, of course, that has an effect on white matter, right? So that superhighway information in the brain connecting all the areas. And this is, a, this is dramatic. This is for dramatic effect. Um, control with DTI tractography and then TBI, where you see a clear decrease in the white matter volumes. And this has uh, been shown over and over again in people with repeat concussions, for sure. Um, and then I think the, where the research is really going as well is in neural networks. 
we already know that there's alterations to default mode network, which is the part of the, the network in the brain that's working when you're at rest, when you're sort of not doing anything. Um, we know that there's research that has shown both hyper and hypoconnectivity um, after concussion. And I think executive functioning networks like the cognitive control network are probably also affected as we know that we see these, these cognitive side effects and symptoms from, from the injury. And I think this is really where the next stage of research is, is going to be in this area, is understanding um, functionally what happens at rest, functionally what happens with tasks as well. The symptom picture, you guys all know this stuff, you know, this sort of four-symptom cluster um, in this injury. And if we were doing more of an acute talk, we'd be talking a little bit more about the visuo-oculomotor stuff. But um, I think for the school setting, this is really the key. And I would put all that into my sort of physiological state um, and balance-related issues. But these are sort of those four symptom clusters. And I have arrows all over this because I don't think they really exist in isolation. You know, they all affect each other, right? So the kid with the headache who might have difficulty concentrating, they might worry about that difficulty, and they might have trouble sleeping. Oh, now we got all four, right? And maybe if we treat one symptom correctly, maybe we get rid of some of the others. But school is a place that brings a lot of this stuff out and on, right? So they're demanded tremendously from the stimulation of that of that complex hallway negotiation, all the technology that's in classrooms now, um, so many things to process. Uh, I mean, think about the stimulation of the lunchroom, and then just the the social, you know, nuances that are going on. Um, all those things that allow, you know, cause that teenage brain to be um, really working pretty hard when they're in the environment. And while sometimes in this injury we see these symptoms come on immediately at the sideline, um, on the playground. They, they just spark immediately. You see that kid has that confusion, that disorientation, the headache, the dizziness. But sometimes it takes a day or two for them to emerge. Now, I'm not talking about the idea that you're not going to get a symptom for weeks. That's a little bit ridiculous. Um, but oh, a day or two later, that's not so uncommon. And in fact, we have a term for this called the Monday morning concussion. Athlete was maybe playing on a Saturday, got injured, um, stayed home doing very little on the weekend, of course, just because they're off school. But then they show up Monday morning, and you get um, all this. And then that's when we start to see those symptoms really come out. And this is also one of the reasons why in a lot of laws we say that you can't have return to play on the same day if, you, if there's a suspected injury, because those symptoms may not pop up for a day or two. And so we want to make sure that we don't send them back into a potential situation where they're injured, and they might get re-injured. So in terms of acute intervention, what's the cure? What are we going to do? But there isn't really one single cure uh, for this. And a lot of what we try to do is treat symptoms as best we can. Um, but even before we get to that point, we pretty much have these two options that have shown up a lot, rest and or versus rehab, right? And we think of rehab because if this is a brain injury, that's the typical thing for brain-injured people, right? We do some form of rehabilitation to try to work on the areas that might have been in decline. But we'll look at some of the research here, and there's not a ton on it um, yet. I think this is this emerging area. We went for a long time, rest was the key, and now we're moving back to the other way where we want to do something more active. And so rest has been talked about as the sort of cornerstone in concussion management. Um, but that's a little bit passe now. Um, it sort of makes sense right away from a physical perspective that when somebody's been injured, it might make sense just to do some rest initially, especially because we know that 
there's this immediate period of vulnerability right after an injury where potentially we see this spike in glucose and then a depression in glucose metabolism and there's a mismatch between what the brain needs and what it can produce. There's this period of vulnerability and if another injury were to happen during that time, that's where potentially these sort of catastrophic or worse outcomes could occur. So immediately resting afterwards, staying out of play, that makes sense. But what about the idea of resting cognitively? Because for so long the focus was just on athletes, which makes sense. We don't want them to get hurt again, and that's where this injury was really living in the athletic world. But cognition is taxing as well, and that can have effect on recovery. So there's certain pieces that we want to rest to make sure that um, we don't exacerbate some of those active symptoms right away. And those are things like, you know, obviously everybody knows about it, right? Screens, we don't want them to just sit and saturate video games and TV and computer nonstop. We also don't want them to do these complex, especially, and this might not apply for 13-year-olds, but kids who are 17 that might be asked to do complex projects, research papers, term papers. Um, that takes a lot of effort in terms of looking at the notes, looking back to, to the age, you know, uh, synthesizing this information at once. That's a lot to do when the brain has just been injured. Taking tests, there's all the stress that comes with that, and that can't be good for that processing piece either. And then complex tasks like note-taking that requires all that visual motor tracking, and uh, that's very taxing on the brain. You think about all the systems that are engaged there, from the vision to the, the, to the, to the processing of, of the cognitive material. But the problem where, this got, where things went awry was that cognitive rest turned into comprehensive rest. And so... You guys have heard of this cocoon therapy, right? And you guys, I'm sure, have seen it, done, have read about it. I'm sure some people in the room might even have suggested it at one point, um, or people listening might have suggested it at one point. And I think because people thought the idea was rest and take all stimulation away. And I think we sort of we overdid it. We overthought about um, what the brain really needed in terms of rest. Did it need so much rest that it was to stay in a dark room for a week? But that's what we still see them, those in notes. It still comes out where you're reading somebody's note, and it says that that's what the patient was told to do, stay in a dark room for a week and not do anything. Okay. The problem with this is that it takes them away from school, from their normal environment. It takes them away from their friends because they're told not to engage in any social activities whatsoever. Um, and also no physical activity. Think about what that does to somebody who's an athlete, who's used to being in shape and working out, and then you take it away from them entirely. You lead to this physical deconditioning, which can also create more symptoms. And even things like don't even talk on the telephone, I've seen recommended. And I mean, I don't know. It just doesn't seem right. It seems like a complete deprivation, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And then think about the consequent of, consequence of telling a kid not to do things. <laughs> all right, so we all know what happens when you say don't, right? They do it. And so if you say someone to a kid, go home, don't do anything, and mom and dad are at work, what are they going to do? They're just going to play video games, watch TV all day, the things that we exactly don't want them to do. And they might order a pizza, and that's also not good for them, right? So um, <laughs> it's a hard script to follow. I mean, if they turn into Will Ferrell, I don't know. He's, <laughs> he's done pretty well. But... You know, the fact that there's no research that really backs this method anyway. There was original studies out on rest, came out in 2012, that suggested that, um, that rest was effective and, and helpful, a week of rest. Uh, but that was not a well-done study. There's no controls, um, heavily biased, and uh, 
that actually, four years before, there had been a study that showed that rest was not beneficial, um, but that didn't get nearly as much publicity and press. Um, that was actually, the one in 2012 was published in the Journal of Pediatrics. Um, but I know, Keith, things have changed a lot, right, in pediatrics in terms of the rest recommendations. Um, but one study that's been done, and you guys probably have seen this one, one study that's been done on, uh, on rest is this one randomized controlled trial, Thomas, from 2015. And he had two groups. He had the strict rest group, so they were told to rest for five days. And then the sort of treatment as usual, one to two days of rest, and then if you're ready to move back, start getting back to activity. Um, very quickly, found that the group that had the five days of strict rest took longer to resolve in their symptoms. Um, symptoms actually worsened over some of that period. Took them longer to recover. And then at 10 days after the injury, they had worse cognitive scores. So why might this have been? Well, potentially some of those issues I was just talking about. You keep a kid home for all this time, you keep them out of their normal social milieu, and they feel isolated. They might start to feel worse about themselves. They're home alone, they're not doing anything, they can't be distracted by the common tasks of school, so they just focus on the symptoms that they have. Um, and then also this reduction in mental and physical activity, probably not good for them either. Uh, so this was the first randomized study that actually suggested that rest might not be beneficial and might actually be harmful. Um, and I think that you know what part of this leads to is that kids do belong at school, in my opinion. If they can get ready in the morning, and I'll talk about this a little bit in the program, if they can sort of do their normal ADLs in the morning after an injury, after a couple of days of rest, once we're past that vulnerability period, they're probably ready to go to school. That's where they belong. It's just a matter of how it's handled, and that's what I'll get into a little bit in the future. We also know that from the other side, so let's, I've knocked on rest enough, now we'll talk about what you can actually actively do, and we do know that um, from animal MTBI models, Griesbach at UCLA has done some really nice work in, these, uh, in, in showing that, it that exercise after the injury can reduce neuroinflammation and actually improve performance on these cognitive you know, maze tasks that they have the, the rats do, um, which is great, very encouraging, and then Letty at Buffalo um, went ahead and, and has tried to replicate this in adults as well. Going back, using, looking at adults with PCS, post-concussion syndrome, and using a programmatic exercise protocol, actually got their symptoms to come way down. We know this is beneficial. We know that this really helps. And then he started using it in adolescents as well as part of his Buffalo protocol. And um, it's safe. It's safe to do. It's not necessarily showing the research thus far that it enhances recovery or speeds recovery up, but uh, it is non-harmful as they go through. So you can actually start people back to activity quicker than we thought previously. So conclusion of this little section here, rest versus rehab, these are our options. No matter how you slice it, you gotta gradually return in to physical activity or to cognitive activity. And it's not good to do a massive rest period and it's also not necessarily good to start somebody back immediately at, at full bore. Um, some of our research that we've done, and I see Ben in the back and he was part of this, um, this study that I did with our mayor lender, um, looked at how if we start athletes, this was in, cogn in college athletes, if we start them on uh, a programmatic exertion protocol pretty, pretty much right away after the injury, um, you don't see any difference in outcomes with those who were told to rest. And it's, again, it's non-harmful. Non you might see a bump in symptoms right away because they're starting back, but at the end it all evens out and, and it doesn't actually 
do them harm or affect their outcome. And Silverberg showed the same thing in a more recent study. Uh, the important part being is that we don't want to go too far, but if we at least observe and we uh, monitor that activity, it can be done safely. And while we might see an, an increase originally, eventually uh, the outcomes won't be changed. And so we think that might be more beneficial and less harmful than that over rest period. So in terms of management, when it comes to the schools, in general, it's been mostly in the return to play sphere. Um, making sure that you do a, there's no evidence-based stuff here, it's all consensus-based. You do a consensus-based protocol to uh, make sure that when kids are returned to play, it's uh, done in a, safe, in a safe way. But I will tell you that high schools still really struggle to get this right, but they do it because they have to, because the law says you must have a return to play protocol in place, um, and otherwise we won't insure you, et cetera. Um, and and it's good that they're doing it, but there are less return-to-learn laws. The state of Vermont has one, um, but it doesn't have a lot of teeth to it. It's not very well described. It doesn't tell you how to do it. Um, and the state of New Hampshire does not have a return-to-learn law on the books. We're working right now, working with the people at the BINH to help figure out some legislation around that. Um, but so this is all about athletes, really. What about the rest of the kids? There's so many more kids in schools that don't play sports. What are we doing with them? Um, some schools have things that they've just adapted, but they're sort of, they're not based on anything other than what we based from athletes on. And uh, they have a very limited understanding of, of how to bring them back. So they're kind of stuck knowing, not knowing what to do. A lot of pediatricians, PCPs, they might write out a plan for the school to use. Um, the ACE School Care Concussion Plan, I think it's called, actually has this list of recommendations that can be followed. Um, but even then, that, that's a limited script because it gives sort of a blanket set of accommodation and doesn't really give tools for how to follow that and follow up on it other than coming back to the doctor maybe in a week or who knows whenever they can get in next. Um, so we saw a, a gap here in something that needed to be, um, to be approached. All right, I'm doing okay. So, um, so we developed a program between BINH, Dartmouth, and uh, Bureau of Developmental Services at the state to bring together a program that was more focused on return to learn, something we could put in the schools, um, walk them through it, give them the support on how to do this. And we called it Concussion Chalk Talk. Originally, it was actually called the TBI Playbook, um, but that was already copyrighted. So um, <laughs> once we got funded, we had to change it. And I'm not in love with the name, but you know, it's been two years already, so we're just sticking with it. What do we want to do in this program, really? We wanted to develop an infrastructure in the schools so that we safely returned all students to the learning environment in a safe way. Again, the focus on all students. A lot of these schools I've already been working with doing the concussion management for athletes, and uh, that was great from the athletic side. They still didn't have really good work for their return to learn piece, and then we certainly weren't capturing those kids who were injured in a car accident who didn't play sports, or the kid who was uh, fell off the bunk bed or was excited. I just read this one the other day. This girl was really excited and she was standing in a doorway and she jumped up and you know, smacked her head seriously hard and um, she doesn't look so good right now. But So things like that. Um, our goals here were um, you know, to develop a return to learn program and really big, maybe impossible goals, okay? Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise, the first one. Um, we wanted to change the culture around concussion in these schools. I think a lot of people had this sense understanding about athletics, but not so much about what learning can, can mean. And they maybe already got the fact that, yeah, okay, so they don't watch a lot of TV right away. They don't play video games. All right. But how do you actually move somebody gradually back? 
to learning. It's very complicated, and we're still figuring it out too, but we wanted to try to bring um, a, a shift to where, where people think about this stuff on a regular basis, and they think about the behaviors that are going on in the school that might promote the recovery or detract from it. We also wanted to try to create change in the whole system, not just the school, but the community as well. And this has turned out to be really impossible, but we're, but we're trying to do this. Um, so these were the real bigger goals. Um, I, I don't have, today, today I can't talk to you about necessarily how these things have worked out through, we've only really run the program for one year. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about the, some of the specific outcomes that we found, things that we could measure. But the point of this grant was to implement a program, not so much to have an effect on larger outcomes. We hope that that would be a consequence of it. But the real focus was how do we take this new plan, this new program, and actually get it working in a school. The way we did that was we started with some very concrete things, which was to create a team. And I know that's sort of become a best practice common thing in schools is to create a cushion management team. But when we wrote this grant three years ago, it wasn't necessarily as ubiquitous as it is today. Um, so we think it's still valuable. We wanted to provide education to everybody in the school and have them feel like they were truly supported in, in working on a program like this. We wanted to make communication networks stronger. Too often we were seeing that part of the problem was that PCP said one thing, school nurse said another, parent said another. That makes it impossible to manage this. This is all a behavioral issue. We can't really control it if everybody says they're seeing different things and then the opinions that they write in or sign off on don't really align. We wanted to make sure that everybody was sort of speaking at the same table. Whoops. And then we wanted to use whatever best practices we could, including things from the literature to inform what we did. And then we wanted to make it available to all students and not just athletes, as I've now said six times. So here's just an example of what that team might look like. We establish a concussion management team leader who's a champion of this program at the school. And that could be anyone. It depends on the personnel. That could have been a guidance counselor. It could be an athletic trainer, a school nurse, um, somebody who just knows the students well. And they sort of function as a hub of all the communication that we're talking about. The trainer gets involved, the nurse obviously. We wanted to really pull and bring teachers in more because they see the child in the classroom on that day-to-day -day basis. They can give us good, uh, a good measuring stick as to say, when they look like this, they look on day two. Did they seem better? Did they seem worse? What accommodations did you have to provide? These sort of things. <laughs> the parent sees the, the, the child at home during this process. That's a, such a valuable piece for us to understand what they look like, school versus home. So we get information from them. Um, and then we wanted to really bring pediatricians, PCPs in. This is a part we haven't quite figured out how to get down right. We're going to try to improve that. And then another key feature that makes this program different than most is that a neuropsychologist, so I'm a neuropsychologist, and someone from my team is on the school team. We don't just do remote consultation. We also go to the school twice a month to meet with the team members deal with more complicated scenarios, and then also do evaluation if additional evaluation is necessary. Sometimes impact just isn't enough. It's not the right test for some kids. It's all screen-based. Some kids don't learn so well this way or don't demonstrate their knowledge this way so well. So we might go in and do more face-to-face -face, uh, neuropsych testing with them. So um, one of our keys was education. Right? Education is probably the best prevention in concussion management. We can't stop all concussions, but we can hopefully you know, stop the, the, the secondary effects. And, and I think the way to do that is through educating. 
So we brought in um, training sessions to educate all school personnel on the brain, on brain injury, on concussion management practices, and then on this program, and most specifically targeting teachers to help them understand what kind of accommodations to give for a student. Um, there has been some, some research at the state level, and I also saw another survey study that showed that teachers felt, this was the area they felt still least confident in, was how to deliver the accommodation, to how to figure out how to work with that student as they're recovering. So we wanted to try to do some more work around that. We also did advanced trainings to the team leaders and the administrators. The idea here was hopefully, if we could get them to really understand some of these larger ideas, they would be able to disseminate that information down throughout the rest of their system start at the top and kind of work down, especially because schools don't give us a lot of time with teachers. They would give us like an hour, and that's not enough time to really talk about brain and brain injury so much, um, and then also get the accommodations piece down. And oftentimes that hour was co-opted by five minutes of announcements or something, so we were really reduced. Um, and the hope is that it was an ongoing process too, because hopefully the CMT leader who meets with the student can teach them a little bit about what they're experiencing and what to expect. Our approach was different to us in the sense because we didn't want to give the schools so much medical lingo and language. They feel uncomfortable with that. That's what experience has taught us is that when you talk uh, about concussion in medical terms or you frame it as a mainly a medical issue, most people in the school get sort of very, uh, they, want, they don't want to touch it. The nurse is okay with it, but everybody else in the school runs away from it because of the litigiousness around this and uh, just because they feel uncomfortable with that, that designation, and that's understandable. But what schools do understand is behavior. So we try to teach things from a behavioral model, from the sense of understanding, okay, so a uh, behavior leads to a consequence. So if we're talking about concussion, maybe somebody who's recovering, they do an activity in school, and then the consequence is the symptom that they experience or their change in their functioning. Those are things that if we can teach them to understand how one thing has an effect on another, we might be able to then get them to alter that first behavior. And if we got really good, we could teach them what was preceding the behavior, but that's, uh, that's a whole other thing. If we can just get the behavior and the consequence piece, piece taught, they're going to be more comfortable making changes and feeling empowered. It's not a medical thing, it's a behavioral management thing. Um, we're hoping that that pays off a little bit, and we're, we're, maybe at the end you'll see a little bit of the confidence that teachers have now. Um, other pieces of this program that were different. We promote an expedited return to the school. So all those things I was talking about before about how um, you know, prolonged rest is a bad thing, we're preaching that we move them on quicker. Um, get them into school if they can do those ADLs after 48 hours. We're also soliciting daily reports. So we have surveys that go out to teachers on a daily basis and they fill out our survey and it comes back to the CMT leader and it populates into a spreadsheet and we can see um, how the teachers think that student is doing, how they seem to them and what accommodations they might have used. We do the same thing with parents. So we get the parents to provide that. Um, so it's not just, uh, Hey, how does he seem? It's actual data that we're getting, and we can use that to make decisions. We also provide these return to learn stages. And then a key part here is, I already talked about the neuropsych consultation, but we're also giving them a thing to do. So some students, they might be ready to come back to school and be in that environment, but they're not actually ready to do all the things that are required of them. But being in the school is probably a good thing for them socially and, and emotionally. So we designed a whole set of rehab sort of activities, replacement activities that they could do instead while they're there. Where would they do? Well, so here's like a, 
I'm definitely running out of time. So here's a decision tree that we created for parents to make a determination as to whether it might be the child might be ready to go to school. And it provides a pathway for them to contact the school so that we don't miss these cases as best we can. And when they come to school, they go to a space, what we've called the Chalk Talk Room. And this is a space where they come in, they check in in the morning with the leader who will go over their symptoms with them and then make a plan for the day to decide what they should do, whether it's go to all their classes or go to one class and see how they feel and then come back. And this is where they might do some of these replacement activities like um, different activities, art-related things, clay sculpture. Um, I know that a lot of this falls in like a, an Eastern sort of uh, motif. Zen gardens, this stuff, kids are actually, they're really enjoying this in that first day back to, to do as a calming activity, but it still keeps them active. Uh, listening to audiobooks and TED Talks that we've picked out that are age appropriate for them. And then also we had a physical therapist design some stretching activities and gentle balance routines for them to do. Um, and in one of our uh, schools, the CMT leader is actually an athletic trainer, so he'll actually have them walk on a treadmill a little bit, sort of in the model of Letty's Buffalo Protocol a little bit. And then some things to reduce stress, such as mindfulness and deep breathing. We have um, CDs, you know, iPod things with uh, audio sort of training things on this to help them do deep breathing. And, and we were just trying to come up with stuff that they could do, as opposed to what we can't do, what can they do? And we designed this return to learn protocol, and we broke it down into three spots, sort of how much work they can do, how ready they are to move forward, and how you make that decision. So in each stage, and I'll just use that as, a, as an example, when they come back to school, they're at school and they don't do work. They just come back and they're there. They don't have to be active and participating in an extreme way. They just are present. And um, that piece of, of Presentness is probably a thing that we think would be, would be very good for them to be part of that community. But how do we know they're ready to go forward? One thing is that um, if they can sit in class for a day without their symptoms getting worse, and we know this from the teacher report and from their own report, they can probably move on to the next stage. And then how do we determine that? We have actual data to, to support it. We have, the Bowie is the name of these scales that we have the teachers and the parents complete. So what's different about this return to protocol than from maybe the one that you might find on the CDC, which was done by good people and it's fine, um, one thing you won't see in any of my stuff is half-day return. I don't believe in partial days. I don't think it makes sense. I don't understand why they'd have to do it, especially if they have something they can do in the school and they can just be there. Um, and you don't have this sort of ambivalence. Obviously, if things get bad enough, they can go home. But again, we know from the research if some symptoms bump initially, it's okay, we learn from that, and tomorrow we don't do the same thing. Or we maybe start a little bit below that, um, but we don't freak out. And so uh, the other piece that's different on, on this one than, say, other return to learn charts is that we actually use some data to drive that decision making as opposed to just how much work they did, but let's actually use some figures to figure out where we go from here. And then we have our guiding principles. Really the key here is to make an individualized plan for each student. So as I'm out of time, let me talk to you very quickly about the results that we've had from this uh, first year of running this program. Um, here's our sample that we got, 108 concussed students. We ran the program for year one in four high schools, but one of them started kind of late, so we only included three in this sample. Um, as you can see, there was no real difference, pretty an even split in males and females. Average age is about 16. 72% were athletes. So this already tells me that we're doing something good because 
the year before, we just would have been basically having all athletes. It would have been 100% of an athlete sample for all the concussion consultation I did. Um, so we were capturing a piece of the population that we weren't getting before. And 19% of the sample had some sort of premorbid learning or psychiatric issue. This is important for us because we know that that can be an influence on a prolonged recovery. So we want to be mindful of, of how much of the sample actually brings something premorbidly. How quickly did they recover? So as, as I said before, the larger points of the grants was a, was a culture change, but here's what we can take away from at least year one is some hard facts. So um, we had three different variables for determining when recovery occurred, and there was the release from the program itself from this Chalk Talk school program. There was the average days to the time that doctors wrote a clearance note, and then also the days to the last time they took an impact test. So obviously the impact test mostly applied to athletes, some school, one school did impact for non-athletes as well. Um, I wish I could just say we wanted, we just could use one variable, but because in year one we still are working out some of these uh, process issues, we had to sort of, I felt it was more honest to show you guys three different ways in which this sort of clearance was determined. But fortunately, um, there was no significant difference between them, so they were all about the same anyway. They were all significantly correlated. So we feel pretty comfortable talking about this as sort of a group, um, even though there was uh, you know, different ways that it was determined. And if we think about how does, how does what we did compare to what the literature tells us? And it's one thing to start a new program. What you hope to do is not do any harm, right? We started something new. We added all these extra things for schools to do. They're already strapped for time and all sorts of resources, and we added these steps. Did we do any damage to them? Also, we were you know, giving them new steps that they hadn't followed before. Did this extend recovery or not? And on average, it was 23 days, which is just over three weeks, which is kind of in line with what we tend to expect in most of the population in concussion. Should get better, you know, 90% from McAvoy get better in four weeks. Um, so we felt pretty good about that. So I'm, I was excited that we saw that. And now maybe the crux of what I was, the tease from the opening, um, in terms of days spent home from school. And on average, what we found was that they spent three days at home um, on average. And you can see that most of it clusters around this. It was either one day, two day, three day. So yes, some were kept out. Oftentimes, we couldn't use that, you know, our recommendation to move the kids back to school soon just wasn't done because what the parents first did was they went to the doctor and the doctor said, stay home for seven days. And of course they followed whatever the doctor said. They didn't care that some school program, you know, said to come back in two days. They, they didn't really, uh, they weren't gonna listen to that and that makes sense to me. Um, but in general, we were able to push this down the, the ladder in the sense that get more kids back quicker. Um, so I was happy about that. That was an important one for me. And then, very nicely, we were very happy to see this too, that fewer days at home was significantly related to um, a shorter recovery. And so again, this sort of feeds into all the things that we were hoping for and thinking about, that the literature was telling us that you keep kids isolated and you risk the chance of them having a, a tougher recovery because symptoms are going to maintain longer. Um, this also reminds me of some of the newer data coming out on college athletes, which is telling us that the uh, ones who report their injury sooner to their training staff have shorter recovery periods. The longer they delay and wait to report it, you see this longer recovery. You think, well, yeah, that makes sense um, because they took longer to start their protocols, et cetera. But 
it's that they, they put themselves in this risk for continued injury, and then it maybe made it more complicated for them to get through a protocol because maybe things didn't go as well. Here, we don't keep them at home where things might actually be detrimental to them. We get them active and engaged, and we maybe see a positive effect. So we're thrilled about this. But you might be saying, well, but what about all the other factors that are related to this? And even when we controlled for severity of injury, so how bad was that injury based on their symptoms right away? Um, it, it, the effect remained. How about how teachers felt that they seemed when they first came back to school? That didn't have an impact on this. Gender had no effect. And we know that girls take longer to recover than boys, but that didn't have an effect on this. And then athletics, you think, well, kids who are athletes really are motivated to return quicker. And that was not a significant factor, even when we controlled for it. And even the learning issues. So maybe this, is, maybe this is a real key for us, because if we know that it tends to affect recovery if they have a pre-existing pre learning or psychological issue, but we've sort of done our best to actually accommodate and think about that and teach the schools to look out for this and ways to handle it, maybe it improves our, our chances of better recovery. From the culture side of things, we did do a survey of all the four schools that were involved. We got 168 educators to respond to this. And they were, on a scale of one to four, they were generally satisfied with this program. I was surprised to see this because during the year, you wouldn't believe all the complaints we got. Um, you know, things about it being too much work to do, or um, how am I supposed to know that, or this is a medical thing, I don't want to deal with this. So pushback all year. And then at the end, we say, you know, what did you think? And then they started telling us, oh, yeah, we felt really supported and all this stuff. <laughs> so great. Um, we also did a little quiz on our final survey about their knowledge of accommodations. So we threw in a lot of foils, things that you know, would try to trick them ab about what a good accommodation would be or what a concussion symptom might be. And they did pretty good. 81% sort of knew what they, were, what, what they were talking about. And then the most important part for me was that they endorsed high levels of self-efficacy in being able to apply these accommodations. That was the thing I thought, oh boy, no, we're not going to see good stuff here. They're going to feel lost. Um, but I think our education and our continued presence in the school made them feel like they could do this better. Because when they had questions, even though they complained a lot, they would come to the team leader or they would see us when we were there and ask us about that. And we would provide guidance. Um, and so pretty good. I think we can do better than 3.13 uh, as a mean on a scale of 1 to 4. But we'll, that's why we're going to keep this program going. Our next steps for our program, if you're interested, is that um, we're adding six schools this fall. So we're going to get up to a total of 10, which is what the grant allows for. And um, we're going to try to make modifications to the communication networks, try to get MDs more involved. And, and the way we might do that, and I'd be totally open to hearing suggestions, by the way, would be to find the local pediatric practices in the school that serve most of that student body and just go and have a meeting with them. Talk to their practice manager about, you know, um, this, is a, this is a program we're doing at this school. And we had done a whole thing where we made a release form for them that they could, the parents could fill out so then the doctor in the school could, could communicate without a problem and, and all this stuff. Um, and so we're hoping to maybe do that this year and, and get into those communities a little bit more to enhance that connection. Uh, we're going to make our data processes even more streamlined. And we're, we've improved our questionnaires and surveys for teachers. So we have even better information to help make decisions. And we want to bring teachers in more because we think they're probably the most important part of this whole thing. So that's the program talk. And then I just wanted to say, in terms of people don't know what we have at DH in terms of sports concussion or concussion in general services, we have our sports concussion program. Currently, um, a lot of those patients are seen by Dr. Carlson in her clinic. And those are really for return to sports decisions and acute concussion issues. 
when things go a little bit longer or they're more focused on cognitive concerns, um, we tend to get involved. Pediatric nurse, I just put the ref code here for uh, reference, uh, make it easy to make that referral. And especially when we're seeing that prolonged symptom presentation, when we have maybe reaching that three-month zone and it becomes maybe a post-concussion syndrome, you're wondering what's making these symptoms maintain. Our evaluation is going to sort of dig a little bit deeper into figuring out and teasing apart the emotional, the pre-existing, the learning issues, those sort of things. Um, and, you know, I have heard, and Tricia contacted me about this, I heard that Eric Schelser is working on a program to enhance the referral process and e-consults. This might be a perfect area for this. If a pediatrician or a pediatric resident is feeling like they're kind of unclear on what to do in this situation with a kid who comes in, pre-existing, IEP, all this stuff, this might be a great thing for the e-consult. So I'm hoping that Eric actually reaches out to me and we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, Okay, so thank you so much for listening to all this. I really appreciate it. Thanks, John. This is great. Um, thinking about um, from the system standpoint, and thanks to you, Uncle, I had a couple of questions. One is, did you do sort of a cost analysis? So for the the, the kids and the like, the having team meetings and time and. Did you do some kind of cost analysis around that? And then did you structure the teams in such a way that they could potentially not this year, but in the future be mm -hmm. applicable to a lot of other things? Because this process is what sounds to me like be really good. fairly beneficial for you know, 50 different diagnoses yeah. that, um, that impact return to learn in a lot of different ways. So on the second point, let's talk, because that's a great idea to how to build this model and apply it to kids with other medical diagnoses or other learning issues. I think in a lot of ways, schools already had meetings set up for things like that. And when I would sit down with the administration at the beginning, they'd say, oh yeah, this would be perfect for our student support services team. And so they just went ahead and rolled it in to those meetings. So they would talk about these kids on a weekly basis at those meetings. To your first point, the cost analysis, nope. <laughs> um, great, no, really good idea though, based on the fact that a lot of the pushback we'd get from schools is saying, well, we can't afford this time-wise and, and et cetera. And part of the mission as well is to kind of create something that's sustainable. You know, for now, we buy their impact. We, they buy, you know, the grant buys my time to, to consult to them. Um, and we give them a stipend for running this program, small, but we give it to them. And uh, how do we make it sustainable once the money goes away? And thinking more about how we keep that infrastructure built in and figure out how much it would cost for that. I will say that one school, actually, a school that has a lot of money, went ahead and actually hired somebody part-time to do this job and this job alone of a CMT leader, and um, it's running a lot better in that school. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Could you say some more about cognitive rest, um, about sort sure. of with the proposed pathophysiology and outcomes. I'm still struggling with that. Well, I think the idea is that um, there is this clear metabolic change that's going on, at least initially. And the idea is that during that time, that may account for a lot of the symptoms that we're seeing. And part of it is that there's this crisis of energy at the cellular level. And so neurotransmission gets altered, and it either leads to these cognitive processing symptoms. And the idea is that if you then force lots of mental activity on somebody at that time, you're going to just exacerbate that process. You're not going to give the brain the time that it needs to kind of come back to a stasis point and sort of heal, which is why rest is promoted. But it makes sense to do that in the first couple of days, which is when that period is most affected. But moving forward, the idea is that 
that extended rest isn't actually benefiting that child anymore. Um, by keeping them out of doing things and being active, it's not like you're enhancing that recovery process because it's possible that that recovery is sort of already taking place in those first couple of days. Um, and, and so by prolonging it, all you're doing is maybe creating more of a, the illusion for the, the child that those symptoms are still present. They might have felt them initially, but they may be going away because that's what happens. The pathophysiology does come back to a stasis point. You do recover. That's one of our rules of thumb in concussion is you get better, you don't get worse. So when things get worse, you have to wonder what did the child do that maybe made it worse, or what did the environment do that maybe created that? Um, I don't know if I answered your question accurately. I mean, the idea is that you don't want to overdo it right away, just like you don't throw them back running full steam and put themselves in a risky situation right away. Same thing, you want to keep them out of those really cognitively taxing things because the brain needs that little period of grace period to heal. So if you ask them to take a math test, the resources that that requires are maybe going to take away and detract from that energy the brain needs to actually heal itself. But that's only, that's only a limited, that only helps in a limited time. The answer to your question is we still don't know how much activity and when. We, we don't know that. And so that's what we're trying to figure out now with a lot of this more active rehab research. And I apologize for the yeah. empirical evidence that taking a math test or concentrating on your, your talk is more taxing than, say, reading a comic book. Listening to my talk, hopefully not. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'd say that th there is one study that showed that increased levels of cognitive activity did have a negative effect um, in the early periods. But I don't like that study. I don't talk about it too much because uh, the data analysis, I think, was a little bit fishy. Um, didn't have a good control group. Uh, and also, the way that cognitive activity was measured was very subjective. So I think we don't have studies to say that taking the math test does this. It's really more, it is theory based. Be honest. Yeah. Actually, I'm a parent of high school athletes, and our athletic director just widely circulated an article in that highly regarded journal, the U.S. News and World Report, with <laughs> <laughs> exactly this information. Yeah. So parents are hearing it, and um, I think that they are going to be receptive to more. Um, progressive strategies than just keeping someone in a darkened room. For yeah, no, I agree. I think it is moving that direction. In fact, um, you guys might have seen it. I believe it was Journal of Pediatrics. Keith, maybe you, you know better. Um, Mark Halstead just published an opinion piece, an editorial, that basically called for this fact of that doing this extended rest is probably hurting these kids more than helping them. Um, I immediately uh, called up Art Marylander and said, We've been saying this for years. Why didn't we write these editorials? Jeez, could have up my publicist. But, um, but you know, I, I think you're right. They are capturing this, and this is where it's going. But Keith and I were just talking. That is where most people are coming to now, which is great because that's I think what the research is telling us. But we still have people out there, the community, still saying a week, a week of rest, stay home, right? And, and I know there's some there's some school communities in New Hampshire that that's part of their policy is that there is no school for a week. There are no assignments for two weeks. Like, it's just part of what's built into what they do. But thank you, though. Some are still saying a week of rest at home and then go back full. There's no, There's no progressive, <laughs> gradual return rate. I don't know what schools you're in or what you're going to, but I, I believe, and let me die, I know that we have Hanover School District school physicians in the room, and I believe we have Lebanon School District. We're, yeah. 
We're, so, we're starting the program at Lebanon, actually, this year. So. Uh, you know, you, you certainly have the local groups in Napa Valley represented, um, and hopefully the school physicians are late for you. But I, yeah. it's nine, so those who want to come talk to Jonathan, go out to the Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs>